All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane. As always, I have Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. I am a sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today we're going to be talking about a topic we've talked about previously, but shedding some light on different aspects. We're going to talk about not just assessments, but why are you assessing in the first place? Why is it so important to get a baseline? Why are you assessing strength metrics and healthcare metrics before you work with athletes? So Alex, let's start with the strength side. Yeah, right. So finding out um, how important are these assessments? You know, are we just doing them to claim that we do them? Or are we just doing them to, you know, save face at the end, at the end of the training block or program? Um, no, but why we assess is essentially for strength training, it gives us a place to start, right? So that's kind of number one is you see where the athlete's capabilities are, where their movement patterns are, where there's possible deficiencies or where they're really strong. And then you can create your plan off of that rather than just throwing them in with a group and do these exercises, do that. But assessing gives us a picture of what this individual's training has looked like, what they're capable of and where they should start on any type of exercise progression. Um, and I think that's, pretty pivotal to creating a specific plan for somebody is knowing where to start. Um, you're not going to have somebody that has zero strength and conditioning experience, jump straight into a back squat or power clean, or you're not going to have somebody that's, I don't know, like stuck in huge thoracic hyperextension. We're not going to throw them on a maximum effort deadlift right away. Right. So it's important from a, safety side of things but it's also important from from a optimal and robust performance type of, of lens that we don't just you know throw exercises at individuals well and i think you you kind of hit the nail on the head that you're not just assessing to save face yeah. i feel i feel like a lot of people just run a standard fms just to save face and say that they do an assessment right. and then they don't look at those numbers ever again yeah. <laughs> or they do it at the end. Uh, they do it at the end of the training block, but they don't really care what it says. Right. I feel. I feel almost that that happens with strength numbers too. Is like, and quite honestly, you know, strength is easy, right? If you, um, I think, uh, forget. I think it was Doctor Michael Yessa said he's like the janitor at the gym is going to get stronger, or the guy who picks up and puts away the weights, he's going to get stronger. Like yeah. getting stronger is relatively easy. So you should track those metrics to actually see what's the um, effect of our program. That's. The second place or the second reason I have is to have objective measures and track progress, right? So if we have somebody that we get through our medical screen or get through our movement screen, and then we have performance um, uh, performance analysis or performance assessments, are they actually getting better at those performances? Is our training program addressing what we want to get better at? That's how you can tell you're on the right track or that you're making progress actually, rather than just, you know, training and getting tired. Right. Right. And everybody's like, oh, like you'll know in your sport, you'll know in your sport, but that's so subjective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so important to have training metrics that try to mimic or try to mimic qualities because you're not going to, you don't want to mimic the sport all the time, but mimic yeah. qualities based around your sport that, you know, give you a higher, uh, a, a better rate of success in your sport. Right. So like, well, I was, I was just going to say like, it doesn't really matter for an MMA fighter, say that they get better at the 40 yard dash right. in reality. It's, honestly, it doesn't matter if a fucking football player gets better at the 40 yard dash. I'll be honest with you, unless you're in the combine, but 
like it does matter that they get better at rotational power development. So tracking your landmine throw or tracking your med ball test or med ball pass that we do the rotational Mm -hmm. punch, like those are metrics that you can, you know, have a correlation to your MMA success rates. Right. I think that's spot on. And, and, you hit on some subjective measures. I think subjective measures are important, but I think you need to back them up or you need to have objective measures um, in the tank that give you more of a, a true sense of what's actually happening uh, from a sports science lens, from a you know data analysis sense. And my thought right, right when you said that was that we're kind of lucky with the space that we're in, in the private sector, that we get to choose actually meaningful objective measurements that we want to track. I think a lot of coaches, and I've seen this, especially in the collegiate environment, they're kind of locked down to what the head coach wants to see, or they're locked down to what they think is going to you know, prove their worth for lack of a better term. And, and a lot of times those objective measures that you're forced into are not what you actually want to train or not what you see fit, but they're what keep your job. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, so like I said, we're lucky in our sense that we get to choose actually meaningful assessments that we um, have filtered through our, you know, our professional sense and that actually means something for the athlete, for the sport, for the progression that we actually want to see and can make a genuine difference. And and that's not to say like we're talking about assessments, right? It's not to say that there's also ways that the biggest thing that I see is that you can influence an assessment. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about those like uh the biggest thing right now is cognitive training. How can you make an advance in the, in the cognitive training? So you do a certain cognitive test and then you have them redo that test in 10 minutes. Well, they just did, you you just did that task. No shit. They're going to get better at it. It's just a pattern. So like, and there's no way to just be random. Of course, if you, if you are, (laughs) of course, if you do a cognitive test and then you do it again, 10 minutes later, no matter what, even, even if it's like slightly different, you're still going to get better at it because you know what's coming. So you got to know that even with your assessments, you need to be, you can't just cheat yourself and you can't cheat your athletes. You shouldn't be doing an assessment to be a gimmick and be like, oh, buy into what we're doing. You need to have an actual assessment based around these different metrics and whether they're, they should align with the science, but even if the science isn't there, they should make sense as far as sport, the sport that they're in and the different metrics you're tracking. But you can't, you can't just do one test and then 10 minutes later do the second test, the post test and be like, Oh, they're so much better. Cause I see that a lot with these like Instagram trainers or like the people with the stupid fucking heco sticks that I, I, whatever those things do, that seems like a waste of time and money to me. And they're throwing those heco sticks around all over. And they're like, Oh, see the strobe light glasses. They were so much better than the first time, not the second time. And then, well, guess what? It's the exact same protocol. And you didn't get better. You just got a little bit more trained in the movement. And then you also adapted to the environment that you're in. That's yeah, it. 100%. That's a, a valid concern with a lot of tests. Is like, are you just getting better at the tests? Or are we actually seeing a training effect? Um, and there are certain tests that that stands out on. Like, I mean, there's a, I think there's a time and place for like heco sticks or like buy-in type of tests um, as far as just like a morale type of environment or, or a, uh, I don't know, just a, a fun atmosphere, but I, I wouldn't legitimately, you know, test how many correct catches on a heco stick do you have? Well, and I, and like, you're right. I I'm always harsh on these different things just because there's so many fucking snake oil salesmen. And it's, <laughs> it's one of those things like I'd rather be all off than let a couple snake oil salesmen through. Yeah. But like, honestly, those things, like the lights, like I've talked to everybody, like I'm actually a rep, like I'm a rep for a, a fit, like a light company. Yeah. I never, I don't, I don't use them a whole bunch. Um, 
but they're, they're, they're great for gamification. They're great. Like I don't use them for an assessment. I use them to gamify certain exercises. And if you have two people at once, it's a good way, like throwing a heck stick to each other. That's a great way for those two to just laugh at each other and yeah, enjoy absolutely. being, enjoy being in the training facility. Right. It's just do your means align with your, your end uh, goal. Like you know, the same thing right. we always talk about. Um, but yeah, but getting past that, that test retest and just getting better at the test, I think comes with um, training and comes with um, experience of the test. Yes. But it, it just depends on, are you training it consistently? Because even like we're talking about our med ball punch, like from the first time, to the second time you do that, you're going to get immensely better because you've done the, you've done the movement. Right. But then if we track it and we test it maybe three or four times over eight weeks, that's going to give us more data points. And it's going to see that we're actually creating power, not just we're getting better at throwing a med ball. Um, So that consistency within your test and that consistent evaluation helps to see where the trend's going is the trend and actual, um, quality strength quality assessment or is it just a a test that somebody's getting better at and that's where the combine i think the nfl combine that's pretty probably the most popular physical quality assessment in the world um not that it again not that's amazing but it's the most popular one and some of the tests are just there to be good tests and they're steeped in tradition and that's exactly it. So without hating on that too much, it's like, it's an important part of the culture. Is it actually important for performance? Eh. Well, dude, I, that's funny that you brought that up. Cause I actually wanted to bring that up too. It's like, we're best friends. Um, mm-hmm. But t- talking about the combine, like I would almost say that the combine in general hurts and like rookies more than it helps them because you spend an entire six or not six months, probably like five months no, training. I mean, uh, some guys would. Yeah. Yeah, but but training for specific tests, not to be a better football player. Yeah. You're not training to be a better football player. Mm-hmm. You're training to be a better bench presser. You're training right. to be a better uh, 40-yard dasher. You're not training You're not training routes. You're not training all these different things. Yeah. So that's hurting your football knowledge. It's helping yeah. you, but at what point, Like, because I've, I've been lucky enough to see combine prep. Like I, I've worked with a combine prep guy, and I've worked with over 15 of the combine guys. Mm-hmm. And each one of them, they were running their bodies into the ground in order to be good at these tests. Mm-hmm. And then they're just going to deal with it on the back end. Well, <laughs> there's such, I mean, there's just such a cultural emphasis and like monetary emphasis, quite honestly, like well, know, yeah. your bonus is going to be different depending on how you test in the combine. But like you said, like, I think there is a foundational level where running a faster 40 yard dash is going to improve your ability to play football. Like, but that's so separated from running a four, three, four to a four, three flat, or those are fast numbers, but that specifically is not going to increase your football playing ability, but taking a middle school to high school athlete from a five, six to a four, nine, like it, that's going to help them play football. That's going to increase their right. abilities on the field. So there's a time and place for that. I just don't know that it's under the magnifying glass when we're already essentially at a mastery level in college. Well, yeah, I just, it bugs me that better football players are getting overlooked by better bench pressers. <laughs> like that's, that's a, that's a dumb aspect of the NFL combo. I completely agree. But all right, moving on to the healthcare side of the assessments. Talking about healthcare assessments, these are crucial when working with our 
uh, actual fighting or, or MMA or jujitsu or com- combat athletes, because you want to be able to get a baseline of active range of motion. You need to know if there's a disparity from right to left, because as we know from the UFC uh, PI book that was put out in 2017, I believe is when, or 2018, I'm not sure which year, but I the, think they're the working fir- on another version, by the way, they are, really, that, that, that'll, that'll be version. out in, yeah, that'll be out in March. Uh, I'm if I, I probably actually had a hand in the data in that. So I'm going to just probably. pat myself on the back is, is doing oh. some of the numbers for Roman Foman, who oh. is the actual genius. Roman Foman. What a name. He's a guy. He's a guy. <laughs> uh, but so from the UFCPI, the first book, they, they were able to show that with their athletes, the peak of combat athletics, that if you have a greater than 10 to 10% disparity, in active range of motion, basically in any metric from right to left, then you have a 70 to 90% increase in injury risk of that joint. That's a big increase. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need to check that. You need that's why that's one of those reasons. Like you need to assess these different aspects. You need to assess not just the the painful area, but also assess the body as a whole. We get so stuck in wanting to rub the boo-boo that we don't want to actually fix the problem. Because if if you were able to see our post from a couple of weeks ago, I think by the time it's released four weeks ago, the most recent research says that 30% of knee pain comes from the spine. 72% of hip pain comes from the spine. 15% of wrist pain comes from the neck. Like all of these different aspects, if you're not looking at the entire body as a whole, when you're doing your healthcare assessment, then you're going to miss these different aspects that could be helping our combat athletes. So it's so important to be able to do that initial assessment on not just the area of complaint, but the whole body, and then write those numbers down. The other thing that we can do is we can do our movement screens, whether if you're FMS, if if, whatever you want to do, you got your own movement screen, DNS, you want to do the building a fighter movement screen. 2021. Um, but doing any different movement screen, that's just a good baseline. But again, we're not just doing that for no reason. Like we talked about with the strength, the strength numbers, we're doing that to align with our goals. We're doing that and actually tracking that as a metric. We should be able to not to be get or to get better at those different screens. And those should correlate with getting back to a healthy state and getting back to combat athletics with less pitfalls. So that's why in my mind, That's why you do a movement screen. It's in order to get somebody from point A to point B with as few pitfalls as possible and give you a little bit more of a roadmap along that way. And I don't know. Do you have anything else to say right now on that? No. Dive into what you want. I was going to say, my question is, and it might be more geared towards that um, acute injury complaint uh, assessment that you're going to do. But if you see something on the overall assessment or the um, injury assessment, you see something that, you know, test positive or there's a like like there's a tear in the labrum or you can see some type of thing that would test positive but there's no symptoms right mm-hmm. is that something that you would address or is that something no, that, i don't i don't fuck, i don't fuck with that shit that's yeah and and that's been my meathead i don't know strength coach approach is like is like there's a clicking here or like this um this happens with my elbow and it's like it's cause you pain no all right you're fine like that's yeah. and so Go ahead on no. that for a second. Yeah, no, there's everybody. So a perfect case is Eric Cressy talks about baseball pitchers. In order to throw above 90 miles per hour, you have to have some sort of tear in your labrum. The normal human body, unless you have lax, like lax connective tissues, like sometimes pitchers have a lower grade form of Earl Stanlow's, which is a connective tissue deformity that allows you to stretch further. But for the most part, 
if you're a normal human, you can't throw over 90 miles an hour without a tear in your labrum. Are those painful? <laughs> and I would argue, are those useful? Because I'm not going to tell, I don't, I don't follow baseball a whole bunch other than the Cubs, but like Noah Syndergaard, I know that's, that's a very fast pitcher. He's, he used to be on the Mets. I don't know if he still is. I'm not going to tell Noah Syndergaard that, oh, you should really fix your labrum. And then he drops from 99 miles an hour to 97 miles an hour. That's the difference in a lot of fucking money. Mm-hmm. So same thing with combat athletes. We hear all the time that they have a clicking in their shoulder because of the way that their scapula is centrated on their rib cage. So that predisposes to an AC click when they turn over their punches. The question is, is it painful or non-painful? If it's non-painful and it's not affecting power numbers, so they're right to left are fairly similar or within normal range, then I don't touch that. So, and, and it's the same thing. Like, I, I feel like I say it all the time with disc herniations. I know I have three that aren't painful right now. They're confirmed on an MRI. I know you probably have at least three, whether between your neck and your low back, like it it's, are they painful now? And do we treat them? Of course you can always do preventative stuff. And there's always there. You should be doing preventative stuff. Yeah. Strength and conditioning. Exactly. But are you going to dive into it and make that the, the copus of your, I think I used that word, right? Copus of your treatment. No, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. And I I get that too. And I've heard a similar thing when I was at the university of Denver and their hockey program is pretty prestigious and has a really good sports medicine staff. And we were talking about that exact stat from Eric Cressian. And we seemingly found the same thing with our hockey players, like except within their hip labrums is just Mm -hmm. the the speed that they play at and the angle that they adduct from their skates. Um, A lot of them probably have tears in their hip labrum just from the sport that they play. And it, it may or may not be a performance benefit, but you know, is it symptomatic and should we address it in that regard? Maybe not. Maybe if it's asymptomatic that we, we let it go. Um, and I would argue that that's a good thing. So I think that's an important point to talk about with assessments is having the critical sport knowledge and the understanding that this is probably a performance enhancement. And even though you test positive on a test or um, there's something that seems to be going wrong, maybe that's necessary for success in the sport. Maybe that's necessary for this athlete to keep going. And if it's asymptomatic and it's not uh, hurting performance, then I don't know. I don't know if it's the juice worth the squeeze, right? Right. And so again, I bring it back to for combat sports because we're all uh, people. If you're listening, you're a combat sports enthusiast or yep. athlete or whatever. Mm-hmm. You big traps for a healthy normal individual aren't good, right? <laughs> right. But they're practical in wrestling. But they're extremely practical for combat sports, jujitsu, striking. In order for you to keep stay in your shell, stay in your guard. If you're striking, if you're a boxer, you got big traps. Wrestler, you got big traps. Jiu-jitsu typically got big traps. You need those different things for the goal of the sport. If you're a healthcare practitioner and you, you're, and I've struggled with this, and that's why I'm saying it, is you can't just be like, oh, guess what? Your traps suck. Let's work on those too. If they're not causing problems, don't fix it. It's when you get that headache or you get trap pain or neck pain, or you have a disc herniation that you, that's when you need to treat it. That's when you need to, to decrease the muscular tension. That's when you need to do your adjustments. But for the most part, you don't need to fix big traps or tight traps unless they are a problem or there's some sort of problem around that area that that could be a part or a player in. I feel like you're, you're using me as a guinea pig because that's been my struggle of late transferring I mean, since my collegiate wrestling days and I, I was that guy that had the, the big traps and the protect of my neck or whatever. And now 
they're just insanely tight and actually cause me problems. But um, as I transition into normal life, I need to figure some of that out to let go of those, that, that performance advantage, maybe. Yeah. You're a regular person. You don't need a performance uh, advantage anymore. But I, I have a hard, my ego has a hard time letting that go, Austin. I, Bro, you're a muggle. Join, join me in the muggle world. it's hard it's difficult man it's difficult um but so another another factor that for combat athletes that you typically see are what alex was talking about a hip labor for hockey players you see that a lot in your jujitsu population so with playing guard and having to have certain rotation of your hips and playing say if you play a like a, a very open guard or you like playing like spider guard and stuff like that, you need crazy angles of the hips and you have another human body on top of you for the most part, adding pressure. Sometimes in order to get to certain places, you need to get to a specific range that is actually damaging the hip, not in a painful way, but it's just causing over time, there's going to be a slight tear that occurs in the labrum. This is where I have, and we're talking about assessments, image, imaging and MRIs are part of an assessment for healthcare practitioners, if you have prolonged stuff, this is where people get scared on their MRIs. They get scared on their x-rays. They get scared on all these different scans because if I get an MRI of my low, like I said, if I get an MRI of my low back right now, it'll show three active disc herniations or three disc herniations, but they're not necessarily active. They're not necessarily causing me pain. They're just there. Same thing with the hip labor with jujitsu players. If you'd get an MRI of that hip, I don't know why you would getting it if you're asymptomatic, but some people coerce people into doing things that shouldn't be ordered. I've seen it firsthand. And you, and this is why I'm skeptical at ordering imaging for people a lot of the times is you're probably going to have a labral tear. It might be minor. It might be major. Who knows? But you're probably going to have some minor tear going on in there or OA of the hip. That's what people love to say. OA of the spine, osteoarthritis or degenerative spine disc disease. All of that is literally like my mentor says it. I can't claim it. Brett Winchester says it. It's just all of that OA, degenerative disc disease, minor tears for athletes in joints that need minor tears to be successful. That's just gray hair. That's just aging. Like, Degenerative disc disease of the spine is just gray hair of the spine. That's it. It doesn't mean that you're in pain. It doesn't mean that you're dying or that you're an 80-year-old. I love when doctors say that. When your back looks like an 80-year-old on this image. Well, as soon as I hear a doctor say that, I'm like, you're a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you haven't learned the recent research then because that means nothing based around the clinical presentation of the patient. Right. Well, where my mind goes with that is is like specific specific adaptation to impose demand, right? You're playing your sport, your, your body's going to deform and change to allow you to achieve a rubber guard, to, um, roll your punch over with more more power. Like that's going to happen. And you know, that's part of your sport knowledge and assessment is like, is that causing pain? No, then that's perfectly fine. Part of your sport. Um, so I think knowing that as a practitioner is immensely helpful and, and integrating it into your assessment is pretty important. I would say, um, Two things. Go ahead. One, don't act like you play rubber guard. Uh, if I really <laughs> there, try. There's zero chance you're getting your hip to that angle. Talk about <laughs> as the said principle. No uh, way you get to rubber guard. I know your hips. I spent a long time trying to be really strong. <laughs> so I stand up for that. Um, so you're a pressure passer, homie. 
Uh, well, I mean, as an every wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the second thing, isn't it awesome how the said principle can get brought into everything? We're talking about assessments and we're talking about healthcare and we can still bring the said, the specific adaptations to impose demands into the conversation because it applies to literally everything in the body. I'm going to contradict you on that point because I, I disagree. Like I don't care what you're saying. I disagree. I agree with that. It comes into everything. I disagree. Or I think that we as practitioners overemphasize it in some of our own programming. And again, this goes back to some of the conditioning stuff I was talking about on our last week's podcast, but I think we plan so much for the the specific adaptation that we almost have like blinders on to what the athlete's actually adapting to, you know, the athlete, I think within our talk right now and in, in assessments and with actually playing their sport and doing their sport, they're going to adapt a lot more to that two and a half hours of playing guard and rubber guard. They're, that's what they're going to adapt to. They're not going to adapt as much to your 15 minutes of conditioning or, or whatever protocols that you, you've imposed, depending, yeah, but- again, depending on the context and stuff. But I think as coaches for me, and I, I've got, I've had to work myself through this is like, my ego is like, all right, I'm going to give them this and they're going to only adapt to this because it's my program and what I've wrote. I'm missing the total picture of their training load and what they're actually adapting to. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that I mean, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I like that. But that's from understanding the sport. You got to know, yeah. like you need to know every, if you're working with a combat athlete, you need to know every facet of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You need to know that like, that's why I have a saying that I say in the clinic with, with my fighters and athletes. It's like, look, I, there's 168 hours in a week. I get you for two in here. Mm -hmm. There's 166 other hours that you could be adapting to other shit. Yeah. Can I at least be knowledgeable about those or like have some information about them? Exactly. But that's, that's how I justify my home care too. Yeah. Where I'm like, I I only get you two hours a week at most. Mm -hmm. Like some people I see three, but those are, those are the people that are actually like actually injured for the most part. If I'm just training them, I see them twice a week outside of actually coaching wrestling. Mm -hmm. But um, that's how I'm like, look, if I need you to do certain things, it's because I only see you for two hours. There's all these different time out here that I need you to also make these adaptations. I need yeah. you to continue the progress that we're making. But like bringing, going back to the sub principle, like I just think it's cool to me personally. Like that's what you were doing in school. Like if you, you, you pick and choose what you study for and that said principle doesn't just change your muscles. It changes your brain. Yeah. Right. That's like in college, that's when you pick a major, you're just, that's literally just a said mm-hmm. principle you're picking a major, you're specifically adapting to the imposed demands of your major. It's yeah. your brain. I mean, you're picking your imposed demands. Yeah. So I, I think that's, yeah, that's I just a think meta, it's cool. that's a meta, I just, meta I know. I just think it's so cool. I just, I, that's like the shit. I, that's the shit that keeps me up at night, bro. <laughs> no, I, I think there's a level of complexity to that as human beings. Cause like, I think we're the only, you know, animal creature that gets to choose our own stress. Right. Yeah. And so th- that's, definitely an interesting facet and um should i have more creative juices i mean i would think i'd be all in on that yeah (laughs) um but what i wanted to talk about next was relating to your idea that we need to track things and actually know what the other 168 or 66 hours consist of or whatever and for the time that we do have with our athletes i think we need to track and understand what we're actually doing within those hours 100% like of the time. So not saying that every, you need to follow an athlete around with an Excel sheet open, but at least for God's sake, track how much weights on the bar. If you're lifting, right. Track how many reps or how many, um, how long an athlete can 
hold a good position and track the the work capacity that we are talking about all the time, uh, the functional capacity. Track those numbers again to see the progress and to actually know that you're creating a difference. And like again, strength is easy. Write those numbers down and almost with any relatively untrained individual every week, you're going to be lifting more weight, right? So track your strength numbers and then you can see incremental gains. And then everybody complains about this plateau that they hit. And that if you're tracking your numbers, that's how you know when to change up your training. That's how you know when, when something new needs to be added or we need to change something up. And it's not for lack of these people that hit the plateaus, but it's for lack of knowledge that we're not actually, you know, tracking things. Well, and if you, if you're tracking things, you get to see the beginning of the plateau. Yeah. That's when you get to change it right away. That's when you get to, oh, maybe we need to switch our, our programming from X to Y, all these different things. You like you want to see the beginning. Stuck. Yeah. You want to see the beginning. You don't want to get stuck in the middle and be like, oh, how the fuck did this happen? Yeah, and then start tracking then. And then you're doubling your time. Right. So, yeah. but no, I think that's interesting to, or important to, assess and then reassess and just keep tracking in the middle. And that's why I'm a big advocate in every, almost every athlete that I have has a sheet with them when they're doing their program or I'm writing on the sheet or um, I think keeping track of that in some fashion, because especially for me, um, I've got so many thoughts going so many different ways. I'm not going to remember what Joey did on his deadlift last Thursday. That's where, that's where our new software true coach comes in. Yeah, True Coach has been phenomenal. I'm a very big fan of that. So. Yeah, it's basically for those that don't know, it's an online programming platform that you can do for in-person people as well. But it can track the metrics and it puts it right into the person's profile and makes a graph based around it as well. It's yeah, really so cool. Speaking of the future, when you sign up to train with us or you build our building or you buy our building fighter phase one, you'll be downloading the True Coach app. Hell yeah! Twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Growth, man. It's growth mindset. You're never there. I think. Uh, <laughs> I saw a tweet today. Um, Elon Musk is now the, the uh, richest man most, in the world. Yeah, most wealthy. Oh, pu- publicly. Yeah. And then he uh, he tweeted back. He's like, huh, interesting. And then the next tweet was, well, back to work. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's just yeah. like, don't stop. You know, bro doesn't care. Right. And I mean, I don't know. Doing things for money, like that's not the real motivation anyway. No, you want to fix people. You want to help people. You want to get them through and make other people successful. That's the goal of everything. Yeah. Get people to reach their dreams or get closer along the way and learn from the journey. Hell yeah. That's what we're going to end on that meta thought right there. (laughs) I mean, I think that's odd. I think again, giving some backbone into why the assessments um, and I parallel my assessments with my principles. Um, I may have just made a post on the conditioning where I was kind of preaching it's more about the importance of the conditioning than the output of the conditioning, right? So I think that way about the assess- assessments too. It's more about having meaning behind what you're doing and, and actually figuring something out rather than just doing the assessment to save face or doing it um, to have more data. I mean, more data is not better. Some would say it doesn't matter if you know the what, you need to know the why. And then that helps you figure out the how. Exactly. Well, so this was building a fighter. Uh, if you guys got to get in contact with us, that is in the show notes, both mine, Alex's and our joint Instagrams, as well as our email. Um, if you guys have any questions, then also like, share, subscribe, do all the cool things that let us talk to more cool people. This is building a fighter, Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Rubin, and we are out. <laughs>